Romans 1.17 is our text for today. This is the seventh sermon in a series through the New Testament book of Romans. Today's sermon is 35 handwritten pages and one rather lengthy printed page, which is a quote. Title of the sermon today is The Do and the Done. So please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and as I preach today, I want you to keep in mind that God loves you. Hear the word of the Lord, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to uh, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Pray with me, please. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you, by your mighty and loving spirit today, would cause us to know, to see, to believe, to receive, and to love your righteousness. Now, Lord, this is something that we can learn about intellectually, but Lord, it is something that we will never know experientially unless you are pleased to reveal yourself and to reveal your righteousness to us. And so, Lord, for those of us here today who have already had a revelation of the righteousness of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ and have been saved, I pray, dear Lord, that we more than ever would delight in what has been done by you and by you alone for us in saving us. And then, Lord, I would pray for the person that has walked into this room today who, even as I am praying right now, is committed in their mind, in their heart, to not listening to this sermon. Lord, they are already bored. They are already distracted. I pray, God, that you would be pleased to get their attention, Lord, and to reveal your Son to them, Lord, so that they will not only see your righteousness, but, Lord, that they will possess it by faith. Grant them faith to possess your righteousness. Lord, be with me as I preach today. Oh, Lord, you know how much I need you. So fill me with your spirit and enable me to help your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I have a three-point outline for you today. Point number one, substitution. Point number two, saturation. Point number three, support. Now, there will be endless sub-points today, but if you can try to hang on to the main points, we're going to be looking at substitution, saturation, and support. Baseball Hall of Famer Yogi Berra infamously said, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. If you come to a fork in the road, take it. At first glance, one could accuse Yogi Berra of denying absolute truth, as if to say, it doesn't really matter which way you go, just choose a path. There's no right, there's no wrong, just pick one. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. But that is not what Yogi Berra meant at all. Uh, actually, when he was speaking, he was making perfect sense. He said these words long before the days of the GPS, and he was giving driving directions to his friend, Joe Gargiola, on how to get to his house in Mount Montclair, New Jersey. And apparently, on the way to Yogi Berra's home, there is a fork in the road which forms a circle. You can go either to the left or the right. You will end up in the same place. So it really didn't matter which branch you took. 
they all arrived at the same location. Thus, if you see a fork in the road, take it. Well, when it comes to the interpretation of biblical passages and doing it correctly, what the smart guys call hermeneutics, uh, most of the time it really doesn't ultimately matter if you get it wrong. Now, it matters in that the Word of God is important and we need to be precise in our study of it, but most of the time, with most biblical doctrines, your interpretation, even if it's wrong, is not going to impact your eternal destiny. Most of the debates that we have within Christianity are intramural. They are not life or death matters. Now, that is not to say that there are multiple right answers. Uh, a verse means what it means. There is only one right answer. But it does mean that you theoretically can get the answer wrong on most of the doctrines in the church, in the Bible and still end up going to heaven. But when you come to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, this is not one of those verses. Romans chapter 1, verse 17 brings you to a fork in the road. And there is one path that is deadly. If it is followed and it is believed, it will lead to eternal damnation. There's another branch in this fork. And it is a pathway, if it is followed and believed, which will lead to eternal life. This is a watershed verse. It's very important today that as I preach, that I lean and rely heavily upon the Holy Spirit, it is important for you, as you are listening today, to be relying upon the Holy Spirit to be your teacher. This is an important verse. If you interpret the words that I am about to exegete or explain, the words righteousness of God in one way, well, then you are committed. You have taken that fork in the road to the left, and you are committed to earning your way to heaven by good works. On the other hand, if you take the other branch, then you are fully committed to salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Before we get to our verse, Romans 1.17, and the outline, uh, let's take a brief look back at the context into which this verse was written. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church in Rome about the year A.D. 57. He's writing in order to clarify some misunderstandings between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, but before even getting to that, his main point, he first needs to establish his credibility by spelling out his gospel. And in chapter 1, verse 16, he tells them that he is not ashamed of this powerful gospel. Why? Well, his confidence is in the fact that that gospel will achieve salvation for everyone who believes, and it doesn't matter who you are. Now, spoiler alert, hang on to verse 16, because when we come to the very end of the sermon, the meaning of verse 17 is going to be enhanced and enlightened by our understanding of verse 16. But we're about an hour away from that right now, but just hang on to that thought. But concerning this gospel, it's so powerful and so wonderful that it doesn't matter how far you've fallen into sin. It is the power of God which is at work to save everyone that believes. Now, in that context, we arrive at our verse today, which is verse 17, and it is noteworthy to 
look at our Bibles and see that the first word in the ESV is the word for, F-O-R. That word connects it with the previous verse. Uh, Verse 17 does not stand in isolation. One commentator has said that Paul gives us two reasons why he is not ashamed of the gospel. In verse 16, it's because of its power. In verse 17, it's because it reveals the righteousness of God. And that might be correct. But here's what we do know for sure concerning the connection between 16 and 17. And that is, we know what the word it, I-T, means in verse 17. It goes back to the antecedent from verse 16, and that is the gospel. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The powerful gospel is revealed in the righteousness of God. Now, that is the context. What are our three points? Well, the first point is substitution. And we're going to look at the words, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, and we're going to come to the conclusion that there is substitution there. Point number two is saturation. We're going to look at the words from faith, for faith, and we're going to come to the conclusion that our salvation is saturated with faith. And then we're going to go to point number three, which is support. This is scriptural support. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That is a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. So here we go. Point number one, substitution. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What does it mean when it says the righteousness of God? Well, unfortunately, that mystery cannot be solved definitively by looking at the original Greek language. Because within the rules of Greek grammar, there are multiple valid possibilities. In other words, by reading it in Greek, it doesn't definitively clear up what it means. It doesn't give us the answer. What we can deduce, however, in broad strokes, in broad categories, that it comes down to one of two things, generally speaking. Either it means the righteousness of God, that is, the righteousness which God possesses in and of himself, his character, his attributes, that is who God is. It could mean that, or it could mean the righteousness which comes from God, the righteousness which he gives. Uh, Furthermore, as we're trying to unravel this mystery concerning what the righteousness of God means, By looking up cross-references, that's places in other texts of Scripture that use the same phraseology by the same author, um, it's not absolutely a slam dunk there either uh, for one particular position or another. Because you can find the phrase, the righteousness of God, meaning one thing in one place and something else in a different place. So even within the book of Romans, you have the word righteousness, which is used 34 times. And Paul, as an author in the New Testament, uses the phrase, the righteousness of God, nine times, and eight of them appear in the book of Romans. Well, what does the word mean in and of itself? Well, the word righteousness uh, means in a physical sense, it means being straight. By that, I don't mean 
uh, not being a homosexual. Uh, although uh, being a homosexual is unrighteous, but that is not what it is saying here. It means literally in physical science, righteousness means to be straight. In the moral sense, it means being right or having a conformity to an ethical standard. And theologians have given us a variety of ways in which the word righteousness is used in the Bible. It has been broken down into four categories. The first one is the rectoral use of it. You think about the Roman Catholic Church. Where does the priest live? The priest lives in the rectory. Who is the priest? The priest is the leader. What is the rectoral righteousness of Christ? It is the righteousness of God as our leader. And what it means is that he, in and of himself, in his own character, is holy and that he will do what is right. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right or act in righteousness? It is his law. It is what he demands. He's righteous, and he demands righteousness. The second sense in which the word righteousness is used in the Bible is retributive righteousness or punishment or judgment. Even as it says in Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge, and he is angry with the wicked every day. What this means is, is that because God is righteous, he must and he will punish every sin and every offense. No one is going to get into heaven by climbing under the fence. Every sin is going to be dealt with. Why? Because of the retributive righteousness of God. Side note. Our criminal justice system in the United States is all out of whack in that we never think anymore in terms of justice. What we think about is rehabilitation. And so the even the prison would be called uh, uh, something along those lines. They are to rehabilitate the person. No, that is not the reason why somebody should be going to prison. They should be going to prison in order to pay the debt that they owe to justice. Well, God is a just God, and he will punish all sin. Third, you have righteousness as redemptive. That's what we're going to be looking at today in Romans 1.17, so we're not going to uh, camp out on that right now. And then the final sense in which righteousness is used in the Bible is through a remunerative sense. Uh, That is, God is going to repay, God is going to repay those who do good. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. God is not unjust or unrighteous so as to overlook your work and love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So that is the remunerative sense in which God is righteous. But as we get to our meaning today, the redemptive sense of the righteousness of God as it is found in Romans 1.17, and as I stated a few minutes ago, broadly speaking, there are only two possibilities as to what this possibly could mean. The first one means that God is righteous or just in and of himself. It is his character. It belongs to God. And therefore, uh, those who take this position will say that the gospel reveals to us what God is like. And what is God like? He is righteous. 
It shows us his purity and his holiness, his uprightness, that God is in and of himself righteous, uh, which is true. God is holy, and he cannot accept sin into his heaven. Uh, even a few minutes ago, um, when Chris read Habakkuk 1.13, Habakkuk is having an argument with God about the Babylonians, and he's saying, how are the Babylonians getting away with this? You shouldn't be allowing this, God. And Habakkuk makes the argument, God, you are of purer eyes than to see evil. See doesn't mean see. See means to have intimate fellowship with. And Habakkuk says, you are so holy and pure, God. How are you condoning what the Babylonians are doing? How are you having fellowship with them? And so in a divine act of righteousness... Our righteous God killed his righteous son in order to pay for our sins. Now, that is accurate. I believe that with all of my heart. However, I do not think that that is what Romans 1.17 is teaching. Uh, there are a couple of reasons why I don't think that is the meaning in Romans 1.17. Uh, first of all, we can learn about the righteousness of God in other places other than the gospel. There are many places to learn about the righteousness of God apart from the gospel. Let me give you one example. People in hell, people who are in hell right now, more so than you or me, they are fully convinced of the righteousness of God. They believe in the righteousness of God and they do not possess the gospel. There's another reason why I believe this is not talking about God's character of righteousness. And, and that is, even though, and, and I will grant, that you, you will see the beauty of the character of God in the gospel. But the second reason is this. Paul, in the argument, is not trying to point out an attribute of God in verses 16 and 17. We know this simply because he uses the word believe in verse 16 and faith three times in verse 17, why in the world would he quote Habakkuk chapter 2, which speaks about a just or a righteous person, if what he was trying to do was speak about the character of a just and righteous God? He's not denying the righteousness of God, but it's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is access to this righteous God through faith. I hope you're tracking with me so far. So God is indeed righteous. That righteousness is seen in the gospel, but the context of Romans 1.17 is not accentuating that. Which brings us, broadly speaking, to the other possibility grammatically as to what it would mean when it says that the righteousness of God is revealed and I believe that this is the correct way of looking at it, and that is that God gives a righteousness, that it is a righteousness which comes from God. Now, here's where we come to the fork in the road. I believe it's talking about God giving a righteousness, but this is where it becomes very critical, whether you take one path or the other. The one path is the path of works, and it goes like this. When God reveals his righteousness in our hearts through the powerful gospel, 
and that is the do religion. Remember, my title is the do and the done. Well, this is the do. This is what you have to do in order to be right with God. When God reveals his righteousness in our hearts through the powerful gospel, it causes us to act or behave righteously. I hope you got that. The gospel is at work in you, causing you to behave righteously. It gives you something in your heart and and in your will which translates into good living or law-keeping, and and then it helps you, the gospel helps you move in the direction of becoming a righteous person such as one whom God would accept. It's the do religion. So the gospel essentially helps you become better, and if you become good enough, well, then you're going to get into the good place. This is the do religion. Uh, This is what the Jews believed, Uh, You do remember that the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. And and as a Pharisee, he was trying to please God by law-keeping. And you remember even in Romans, his burden, his burden for the Jewish people is that they were trying to please God through law-keeping. Turn over to Romans chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal. In other words, Jewish people, congratulations, you are enthusiastic. Like, you're really into this. That cannot be denied. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. It's not just, they're not just enthusiastic, but it is a zeal for God. But not according to knowledge. They're driving really fast, but they're going in the wrong direction. And what is the description of this wrong direction? Verse 13, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, they do not have the correct interpretation of God's righteousness. They think it means You just need to be good. You just need to get better. An example of this would be seen even in the 20th century. You remember the movie Schindler's List? You remember Oscar Schindler. So you watch that movie, you come to the conclusion that he is a good guy. At the end of the movie, uh, there's a little script that comes up on the screen. It says that he was deemed by the Jewish people to be righteous among the nations. What does that mean? It means that this man, by virtue of the fact that he saved so many Jewish lives, brought about righteousness for himself. Even though he is not a Jew, he, in our estimation, is righteous. And that makes perfect sense in the do religion. Like You just do good things, and if you do enough good things, well, then you are deemed to be what? You're deemed to be righteous. But what is ridiculous about that, and and I will grant that Schindler did amazing things and that he was very sacrificial in the way that he put himself out there and saved many, many lives. But the fact of the matter was he was a very debaucherous man and, and he was a serial adulterer and he lived in habitual licentiousness. The man was not morally a good guy, but yet he ends up being righteous among the nations. Why? because he did some good things. And what Paul is saying here is, 
I think we Jews have it wrong when it comes to defining righteousness. We think it means that God is going to grave on the curb. We think that it means that uh, uh, if your good outweighs your bad or if you compare it to other people in a certain way that you're going to get in. So just keep working and you're going to get in. When I was a young minister, I went to a, a funeral in Georgia that was a couple of towns away. There was a man in our church. His father died. Standing by the casket, the man's wife walks up, looks in the casket and says, he's with the Lord now. This is what he's been working for his whole life. I'm thinking, that is like the exact opposite of how somebody gets into heaven. It is not of works. Well, that is what the do religion is teaching here. And I believe that the greatest expression of the do religion is the Roman Catholic Church. To the, at its core, what it teaches is that, is that you are given grace so that you will be a better person. You have to do something meritorious or righteous in order to end up in heaven when you die. Uh, Father Leslie Rumble, he was a Roman Catholic priest who lived from 1892 to 1975. Leslie Rumble, and you know what they say, life ain't easy for a boy named Leslie. Believe it or not, you laughed louder than the people did in the first service. And I hate you. You are unrighteous. Father Leslie Rumble writes this. God does not merely declare the soul righteous or just in his sight. He makes the soul holy in itself by producing within it, through the activity of the Holy Spirit, a supernatural quality of spiritual goodness, which is a true regeneration, renewal, or renovation. In other words, the Roman Catholic doctrine of salvation is that the gospel gives you a renovation. It just makes you better. And, and then you become better and then God accepts you. I think you'll remember it better if I demonstrate it through pop culture. And that was a song in 1961 by Wayne Cochran. And I wish I could get as many laughs as Wayne Cochran. I, I'm only putting that up there so that this will be embedded in your mind. And I, I, in reality, I am jealous, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Wayne Cochran, 1961, has a song called Last Kiss. Uh, it was redone by Pearl Jam. Uh, and if you're keeping score, in 1973, it was redone by a group called Wednesday. But but that's not going to help you in your sanctification. The original, 1961, Last Kiss, says, Oh, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I've got to be good, so I can see my baby when I leave this world. Anybody remember that song? Both of you. Great. Thank you. Yeah. But, but it makes sense. That is the do religion, right? She's gone. We're in a car crash. She's in heaven. So I want to be with her. What am I going to do in order to get there? I've got to be good. That is the do religion. That there is a higher power who one day will judge you. In order to pass judgment, you have to be good you have to do good. Thus the title of my sermon, The Do 
and the done. This is the do. Someone has wisely noted that there are only two religions in the world, the do and the done. Now, if we move this in an even more nuanced form into evangelical Christianity, there is even a more dangerous form of this, and it is the doctrine of decisionalism. Uh, John Riesinger, who preached in this church in 2001, he's with the Lord now, he was an amazing preacher and theologian, says this, rather lengthy quote, but I think he nails it. He says this, there are basically two religions in the world. One says, if you will do such and such, God will graciously bestow his blessing upon you. In distinctly evangelical circles, this religion emphasizes if you will open your heart, then God, dot, dot, dot. And notice carefully the three key words, if you will. God's forgiveness is possible if. God's forgiveness is possible if you. God's forgiveness is possible if you will. The ultimate success or failure of this religion is determined solely by the free will of man. End quote. And boy, isn't that dangerous. The do religion says it's up to you. You see, the interpretation of the righteousness of God being revealed, the one that I just gave, namely that God helps you to behave properly in the due religion, is a real fork in the road. It is a real watershed. Because if you decide to go down that way, you need to be warned today that if anybody would keep the whole law yet break it in one point, he is considered guilty of all. You say, I'm going to try to get to heaven by working my way there. Good luck, but just know this. The standard by which you are going to be judged at the end of time is the character of God, which is holiness. And so all you must do in order to be eternally disqualified from going to heaven is to have one sin on your record at any point. This is a critical juncture in Scripture. If one accepts this interpretation then they are on a path to pleasing God by their own works. Ironically, the biblical gospel, the true gospel, teaches the exact opposite. Uh, The biblical gospel teaches that because God is holy and because we are sinful, there is a chasm between us which cannot, cannot be crossed. We cannot earn our way to heaven, or as it says in Ephesians 2.9, not of works, or as it says in Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You see, those in the dangerous, damnable, do religion say, uh, yes, we believe in the gospel. We believe that a man is saved by faith. And then they say, and that faith will enable that man to do the works of the law. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel and it enables us to live righteously so as to please and to be accepted by our righteous God in the final judgment. And Paul screams, no, no, run the other way. Please, if you're listening to me right now, if you're tracking with this argument, it is apart from the works of the law, separate from, it is excluding the works of the law. 
And yet, as clear as the Bible is, some people still believe that they have something to offer God which will help them in the final day. In other words, they say that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel in such a way that it makes me behave and believe and feel and sacrifice or do whatever it is to do religion. And that's how God is going to accept me. If you've heard me share the gospel, I share the gospel in the same way every time. And there is an illustration that I use. And I draw uh, on one side of the piece of paper three X's. And I say, these are three people. And then I, 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 I draw uh, an, uh, on the other side a little piece of land. And I say, these three people are in Jones Beach. They are swimming to Ireland. The three people that are swimming are Michael Phelps, the most decorated swimmer in Olympic history, you and a man with no arms and no legs. Who's going to win that race? And the person will say, I believe Michael Phelps is going to win that race, to which I say, trick question, you're wrong. Nobody's going to win that race. We're looking at about 3,000 miles. What's going to happen is Michael Phelps is going to swim out about 10 miles. He's going to cramp up and he's going to go down. You're going to swim out about a mile. You're going to drown. And the guy with no arms or no legs is going to roll out about 10 feet and he's going to drown. But at the end of the day, all three of you are going to be dead and you're going to be much closer to this coast than you are to that coast. Now we move it into the moral realm, and there are three people. Who are they? Mother Teresa, you, and Adolf Hitler. You are not as good, morally speaking, as Mother Teresa. You are not as bad as Adolf Hitler. But what all of you have in common is that none of you are good enough for God because he demands perfection. And although you vary in your own individual acts of piety and righteousness, all of you are closer to this coast of damnation than you are to this coast of salvation. You're not even going to get close. A couple of weeks ago, I shared the gospel with someone. I used this illustration and repeatedly, as ad nauseum, obnoxiously, I just kept saying to him over and over, so all you need to do in order to be disqualified from entering into heaven is to have one sin on your record at any time during the course of your entire life. There is nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you have that God will accept. You are lost and there is nothing that you can do about it. Your good works cannot earn favor with God. Your tears cannot earn favor with God. Money giving, nothing. There's nothing that you can do to earn favor with God nothing. You are just lost. And then I explained substitution, that Jesus came and died for sinners, and that what we could not do for ourselves, God did for us in Christ. I get to the end of it. I kid you not. You cannot make this stuff up. I get to the end of it, and I say, what do you think of that? And he said to me, I don't go to church every week, but I am a pretty good guy. For example, last Saturday morning, I was jogging around the reservoir and I came upon a man who had a broken bicycle. And the man did not know how to put his chain back on. So I interrupted my run, turned his bicycle over, put the chain back on him, finished my run with greasy hands. I am a pretty good guy. The righteousness of God has been revealed to him in such a way that he is trying to be righteous in his actions. 
That is the do religion. And all who adhere to the do religion will be in hell for eternity because God demands perfection. Which brings us to the other option of God giving righteousness. This is the done religion, D-O-N-E, the done religion. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed and the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And this means that God, who is righteous, declares us righteous. And it has nothing whatsoever in any way whatsoever to do with our behavior, our actions, our change of life, or our change of mind. It has nothing to do with us helping out someone who has a broken bicycle. It is God, through the gospel, declaring to us to be 100% righteous in the record book of heaven. And that is done by, here's our key word for point number one, substitution. The gospel is the message of swapping, trading places. It is an exchange. The powerful gospel says that Jesus gets 100% of our sin, and he pays for 100% of our sin by his death on the cross. All of our sins, past, present, and future. You know those sins that are eating at you right now? The thing where, I mean, you're acting all cool in life, but when you put your head down on your pillow at night and you are hounded by your conscience, what have I done? That sin, which you can't shake, in the real world, as you live from day to day, nobody knows that it's getting the best of you, but I know it's getting the best of you, and you know it's getting the best of you. That sin, which is pressing upon you, which makes you guilty before God, in The done religion, Jesus pays for 100% of the guilt and punishment for that sin. The only contribution that you make in the done religion to your salvation is the sin from which you are saved. The powerful gospel says Christ died for our sins, but that's only half of it. The other half of the powerful gospel says this, there is an exchange which needs to be completed when we are joined to Christ or in the vernacular when we accept him as our personal savior. And at that point, the perfect righteousness of Jesus is credited to, or I'll use an, in, 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 like a smart guy word, it is imputed or reckoned to your account. Such that God then in this true gospel looks at us and sees his own perfect righteous character in the person of his son who has been joined to us by faith. It's not in our behavior. And it certainly is not within the deep recesses of our minds. Don't you hate it when someone is just like wicked and someone will say, but you know what? Deep down, he's really a good guy. The fact of the matter is they are worse deep down than they are externally. The reason that they are wicked externally is because they are so wicked deep down. And, 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 and this person, It is not going to be able to please God. It is not about our behavior or even our intentions. But rather, what this righteousness from God means, it means that it has been credited to our account by substitution through the work of Jesus Christ. We messed up. He took the punishment. He lived a perfect life. We get the credit. Quite simply, 
God's righteousness revealed in the gospel means that God credits our record with the righteousness of his son. Not that he enables us to live righteous lives. Now, please listen carefully. God does, by his spirit, enable us to be obedient to the word of God. But that is not what Romans 1.17 is talking about. God's grace, which enables us to pursue holiness and the way that we live, is called sanctification. Sanctification is not in Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17 is referring to justification, being declared 100% righteous by God, and that is what the powerful gospel reveals. The closest cross-reference to this is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is what the gospel reveals objectively through the truths of gospel content, and that is what the gospel reveals subjectively or unveils in our hearts when he turns on the lights and shows us that the due religion of fastening bicycle chains is empty and will only land us in hell and reveals to us that the done religion of simply trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ is all we need and will land us in heaven. That's point number one, substitution. Point number two, saturation. And by saturation, I mean that salvation is fully saturated with faith. The phrase in 117 says, from faith, for faith. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. What does that mean? Let me just save you a lot of time right now. I don't have any idea. I don't know. A lot of different translations. There's a lot of different guesses by a lot of different uh, uh, Bible commentators. And I have a lot of pages in my notes about this. I'm just going to save you some time right now and say, I don't know. I do know this. I know that I'm not good at grammar. And I do know that when I read the commentaries and they start talking about these prepositions, is it from or to or for? Or is it to and for or from and to? It's like, I don't even, I, like, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm a little, I didn't get a great education. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not good at grammar. But here's one thing that really baffles me. The Bible commentators will talk about these prepositions, but you know what they will miss? They will miss the fact that in verse 16, Paul talks about the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. You know what that is? That's faith. And then in verse 17, he says, it is from faith for faith. You know what that is? It's faith and faith. So now what do we have so far? We have faith and faith and faith. And then at the end, when he makes a quote from the book of Habakkuk, he says, the just shall live by faith. You know what that is? That's faith. Therefore, what we end up having is faith and faith and faith and faith. So I would say it's saturated with faith. And whatever it means, it's talking about faith. So let's forget for a minute about the prepositions, which the only person that knows what that means is the apostle Paul. If you want to know, you're going to need to die and go to heaven and ask Paul. I'm sure that when the scroll arrived in Rome and they unrolled it and they read it is from faith for faith. They looked at one another and they said, what in the world does this mean? I don't know. We'll ask Paul when he comes. For now, it doesn't matter. I'm not saying it isn't important. I'm just saying there's no way of knowing except to say that it is about faith. 
And since the righteousness of God is revealed or made known or imputed to us for faith, from faith or whatever, faith is included in this. Faith is the channel by which we receive this imputed righteousness of Christ. So I want to tell you five things about sole fide, about sola fide, about saving faith. Number one, saving faith is more than just knowing and believing facts about Jesus and the gospel. Even though you might believe it with all your heart, that is not saving faith. James 2.19 says, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. I have a friend, and I think he's right. He said, I believe with all my heart that Satan is a five-point Calvinist. Like, like he knows doctrine very well. Knowing doctrine does not save you. Believing intellectually that these things are true is not saving faith. Secondly, saving faith is a free gift from God which he grants sovereignly to his elect. You don't stir it up within you. You don't possess it. It's not lying dormant within you and you have to to rouse it up. You do not have faith by nature and you do not get faith unless it is given to you. And there is nothing that you can do to earn it. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace, unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Number three, Saying that you believe or inviting Jesus into your heart or saying the sinner's prayer does not necessarily mean that you have saving faith. You, you, you see these Billy Graham crusades that he used to have and they would have thousands of people that would walk forward and they would pray the sinner's prayer. Some of them were actually saved. But I want to say this. They were not saved in, because of that invitation or because of that prayer, they were saved in spite of it. It, it. it is not your inviting Jesus into your heart, which is saving faith. Last week, I was talking to an elder in another church, and he said that he and his fellow elders are debating even now whether or not to baptize. And I'm, I'm not talking about sprinkle. I'm talking about like real baptism immersion. They are debating right now whether or not to baptize a three-year-old. I am not saying that three-year-olds can't be saved. John the Baptist was regenerated in the womb. I'm not saying I hope that that three-year-old is not saved. I'm saying I think it is insane to baptize as a believer, a three-year-old, because they have said, dear Jesus, come into my heart. Because I don't think that there is any way that you can determine with a three-year-old whether or not they are regenerate. I hope that that kid will be in heaven one day. But Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So just because a person has prayed the sinner's prayer does not necessarily mean that they have saving faith. Number four, when saving faith is exercised, it will produce good works as evidence of its existence. Good works will not save you, but here's what good works will do. 
they will give you evidence that you indeed possess saving faith. And if there are no works, then there is no faith. James 2.17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith must save you, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Ephesians 2.9. It is not of yourselves. It is not of works, so that no one can boast. But only faith will save you. Works are the evidence that you're saved. And number five, saving faith is full and complete trust in Jesus Christ and nothing else. Remember several weeks ago, we preached earlier in the book of Romans about the gospel, which is concerning God's son. You are not saved by perfect doctrine. You you are not saved by crossing your T's and dotting your I's. You can have perfect doctrine and still go to hell. It is not the doctrine that saves you. It is Jesus himself. It is a person. And so saving faith is you not running to a set of beliefs as they have been explained this morning from the pulpit. It is you as an empty, guilty sinner running as fast as you can to the person of Jesus who died for sinners and casting your trust upon him. It is calling out to him for mercy. It is about the person of Jesus Christ fully trusting him. Which brings us to our third main point. We have looked at the substitution, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We have looked at the saturation in the passage about faith. It is faith and nothing but faith. Sola fide, faith and faith alone. Now we come to point number three, and this is the support. In other words, the scriptural support for the argument that salvation is by faith alone. Again, Romans 1.17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I do not fully understand the context of how the book of Habakkuk fits into this argument. The book of Habakkuk is a discussion between Habakkuk and God. God tells Habakkuk that he is going to punish Judah because of their covenant unfaithfulness, and the instrument that he's going to use is the Babylonians. The Babylonians were wicked people, and Habakkuk knows that the Babylonians are wicked people, and God says, Habakkuk says, that's not fair. They are more wicked than we are. How in the world can you use them to punish us? And God comes back and he says to Habakkuk, don't worry, Habakkuk, after I've used them to punish you, I'm going to turn around and punish them. Now, in broad strokes, that is the book of Habakkuk. And in the midst of this discussion, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, it says, behold, his soul, speaking of the soul of Nebuchadnezzar, or the Babylonians, his soul is puffed up. He is arrogant. Do you know what that is? That's the do religion. That, that, that's, that's what I can accomplish. There's an arrogance there about Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. It is not upright within him. He does not actually possess a true righteousness. Nebuchadnezzar is filled with pride. But by contrast... My saved ones, they are not like that. 
You know what they have, Habakkuk? They have an uprightness. But it is not an uprightness that comes through good works. And it certainly is not an uprightness that comes through being puffed up or arrogant. But the righteousness which they possess is a righteousness which they gain by faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. In other words, it is the done religion, not the do religion. Now this phrase, the righteous shall live by his faith, is found in Galatians and in Hebrews, but we're only going to have time to look at what it means in the book of Romans 1.17. Why in the world does Paul quote this verse? Why does he look to it for support for his argument that the gospel, the powerful gospel of God, is the revelation of his righteousness that comes by faith? Well, let me explain what it doesn't mean. And I've often, this is the way that I've heard it interpreted. The just shall live by faith means that you're going through life, you don't know how you're going to pay the rent, but you're trusting in God, and how are you going to get by? I don't know, I'm just trusting God. Well, how are you living? Well, we're living by faith. The just shall live by faith. Well, that is true, that is good, but that's not what this means at all. I need you for these closing moments to put on your thinking cap and to concentrate because what I'm about to say here is marginally complicated, but I think I'm right. Here's what I think the verse means. You have to go first to who the Apostle Paul was. How was he brought up? How did he think? Well, in Philippians 3, 5, Paul calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. And if he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that meant that undoubtedly he spoke Aramaic. And not only did he speak Aramaic, but he thought in Aramaic. Those of you that, that, that speak multiple languages, like me, uh, you, you, you know that you, you, you will maybe speak in one language, but think in another language. Paul, in his heart, is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is an Aramaic thinker. He would have read the Old Testament in the Aramaic. Do you know that in Aramaic, the same word that's used for life is the same word that's used for salvation. Life and salvation are the same word. Now, remember what I told you earlier. Verse 16 helps to explain verse 17. Stay with me. If he would have been thinking in Aramaic terms about life and salvation, and, and by the way, what I'm about to give you is not something that is original with me. I got this from F.F. F. Bruce, but I, th I think he's right. If life and salvation mean the same thing, then what he is saying here is it would go something like this. It is he who is righteous, justified in the sight of God, by faith, that will live. It is he who is righteous by faith that will live. And this means that it is he who is justified or righteous by faith will be saved. Live and faith are the same thing from 16 to 17. Remember up in 16, he speaks of the gospel being the power of God unto salvation. In 17, he talks about life. If life and salvation are the same thing, then 16 supports 17. 
Now, in 16, after talking about this, he goes on an excursus as a side note, a parenthetical thought, and he says, and by the way, this is for everybody who believes. It's for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But then comes our connecting word, F-O-R, for, as we get into the beginning of verse 17, and he picks up the argument or the line of thinking that he started in 16, and he says, for in it. In what? In the powerful gospel that saves. For in it, there is an imputation or a crediting of the righteousness of God that comes to someone. Well, who does it come to? It comes to the one, verse 16, who believes. For the gospel is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believes. Who is it for? Verse 17. It is from faith, for faith. The just shall live by faith. It is faith, faith, faith. It's for the one that believes. You see, what he's doing here is he's circling back to verse 16, everyone who believes. And then he reiterates that same thought by saying, faith, faith, faith in verse 17. And then he closes out the thought of salvation and faith by supporting his argument from Scripture by saying, oh, by the way, just in case you're tracking with me, but you do not think that I, at this point, am telling you the truth. I want you to know that I am not coming up with this off the top of my head. There is actually a Bible verse which proves my point, thus the support. And the Bible verse says that faith or believing is the way in which this powerful gospel gives life or salvation. Habakkuk 2 for it is he who is justified by faith that shall live eternally and have salvation. It is he who has been granted by imputation the righteousness of God to his record by faith, three times in 17, for believing, once in verse 16, that shall have life eternally, verse 17, or salvation, verse 16. In other words, in slightly different ways, verses 16 and 17 are saying the same thing. And for those reasons, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, and neither ought we to be. So Martin Luther, he's a Roman Catholic monk. He hates God, and he hates God's righteousness. The reason that he hates God and hates God's righteousness is because to him, all he has ever done is he has read through the lens of the due religion through the Roman Catholic Church. The only thing he gets about the righteousness of God is Psalm 711, that God is a righteous judge and he is angry with the wicked every day. And so for a decade, he literally, not figuratively, but literally, he beats himself tries to punish himself, to do whatever he can to keep the law of God. The more he does it, the more frustrated he becomes, and he hates God, and he hates the righteousness of God because he's been reading exclusively through the works of the due religion of Roman Catholicism. But he had enough sense to know that he couldn't measure up to God and to God's standard. So he hates God, and he hates God's righteousness until one day... He reads Romans 1.17. And in the reading of that, God is pleased to turn on the light. You know, that's what happens when we're saved. We're just like going around through life, maybe trying hard, maybe trying not at all. Boom! Out of nowhere, he just turns on a light. Why does he do it? Because he wants to. 
And, and that's what happens here with Martin Luther. The light goes on one day. He reads Romans 1.17. His eyes are open to the truth that salvation is by faith and not by works. Here, how Martin Luther describes it in his own words, what happened to him in 1519. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice or righteousness of God and the statement that the just or the righteous will live by his faith. Then I grasped the truth that the justice or righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby uh, through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on new meaning, and whereas before the justice or the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a great gateway to heaven. You teenagers that are at church right now, you who are here because your parents are making you be here, you do not want to be here, and in being here, you certainly do not want to listen to a sermon that's an hour and five minutes in a hot room. You who are just, you cannot wait until this is over. We pray that there is a day when God will turn on the light And he will show you that faith in Jesus Christ is not something which is boring, but it will become the greatest delight in your life. And if God turns that light on, you will look back and you'll say, man, I don't know, what church do you used to go to? You used to go to North Shore Baptist Church. Oh, where that guy used to preach forever and he'd wear those ugly ties. Yeah, that's where my parents would take me every time. You know, sat there, I was bored to death. I hated being there. And then one day, boom, God turned on the light and Jesus saved me. That's what God did for Martin Luther. He saved him. This verse not only set Martin Luther's soul free and saved him, but it sparked the Protestant Reformation and brought the light and the beauty and the power of the done religion, the it is finished religion to the world, and it exposed the weakness and the errors and the damnable lies of the Roman Catholic do religion. So in closing, I would say to you, stop trying to muster up a righteousness of your own good works which you can present to God on the judgment day because quite frankly, he just doesn't want it. And instead, by faith, put your trust in the righteousness which God offers you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the imputed righteousness. Dear friends, aren't you tired of trying to earn God's favor? Jesus offers you rest. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. If you are unsaved, you cannot work your way into God's favor. The due religion don't work. You need Jesus. Believe in him and call out to him. And if you are saved, rejoice that the work is done. And by faith, delight in the one that loves you. Were you able for over an hour to remember that God loves you? Indeed, he does love you, and he's demonstrated his love in the powerful gospel. All right, 17 verses down, 416 to go, which means we're getting there. We're getting there. Father in heaven, save the one that is striving to be saved by their good works. 
Lord, please reveal yourself to the man who chained, changed the bicycle chain. Lord, reveal yourself to all here today who are working their way to heaven. Lord, for those of us that know you, may we now rest even more secure that it is not about us, but it is about what you have given us, your perfect righteousness. Help us, Lord, please, to value it and to treasure it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.